atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Northern Kentucky University political scientist Michael Baranowski. I'm joined today by my once again not conservative counterpart, professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Hey, it's great to be back. Yeah, it is. And I am looking forward to getting to some of the things that we didn't have time to discuss on the regular show. I, I always, whenever, on the rare occasions that you and I get to do the podcast together, I always try to focus on as many legal things as possible to take advantage of your legal expertise, because, of course, you are a resident constitutional law scholar here, literally, <laughs> on this show. And it's always always a lot of fun for me. And one of those stories I wanted to talk about uh, had to do with, uh, well, another legal expert, another conservative Legal, legal expert, and that's a retired federal judge, My, Michael Lutig. Um, and, and of course, this the reason I want to talk about him is because ever since the Supreme Court agreed to hear an appeal of Colorado's ruling that Donald Trump is ineligible for office, amicus briefs had just been pouring into the Supreme Court. And this last week, uh, Judge uh, Lutig filed one of these briefs. And he's not just some guy. I mean, he has some serious conservative and legal credentials. I mean, he was a, a White House counsel in the Reagan administration. He was appointed to the Fourth Circuit by George H.W. Bush. He was there from 91 through 2006. The guy's got some serious legal chops, widely respected in the conservative legal community. At least he was prior to speaking out against Donald Trump after January 6th. Now, I had a chance to review his brief, and in it, he, he does a number of things, and I'll just kind of lay this out, and we can talk about it, Ken. Um, he makes first an argument that he believes should be convincing to a majority on the court if they hold to the textualist interpretive principles that they've cited so often in the past. And he, in fact, writes that it would violate the rule of law and textualism for the court to essentially create an off-ramp to avoid adjudicating whether or not Donald Trump is disqualified from running. I mean, he's not buying the argument that the court can claim that, well, the president isn't an officer of the United States and therefore is not covered by the insurrection clause, as a number of people have suggested that the court might do. But, and, and I think maybe I'll stop here before we get to the rest of, of Ludig's arguments. What do you think about that? Because that's certainly, I mean, there's been a debate about whether or not and, uh, uh, the president is technically an officer of the United States. Uh, what do you think about that as a way for the court to sort of get around actually having to rule on this? Well, I do think the court is going to use an off-ramp of one sort or another, despite, uh, you know, Judge Ludic telling him they shouldn't. But uh, I, I think that they would probably the, – the, the kind of naked argument that the president is not an officer of the United States is ridiculous. And I don't think a single justice would subscribe to that. What, what I think you might see is a, a variant of that that some justices would subscribe to where they would say, well, um, although, of course, the president is an officer of the United States – um, he and the vice president are the only ones who are elected, and all all the other officers of the United States are um, appointees. 
um, either in the executive branch or in or, or judges. And uh, um, and and I think they might say that the 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 true meaning of the the clause um, is that that applies to appointments and not not to elected officers. So I, I think that's a plausible off ramp if they want to find a way to carve out the presidency. Um, it's a, it's it's not a textualist uh, approach, right? Because they would be reading the word officer, they would just be reading in the word elected officer. Um, but I think that's a more plausible uh, approach than to say, well, he's not even an officer. I mean, that's outrageous. You know how. How could he even give a military order as commander in chief of the army if he wasn't uh, an officer? So, so in other words, if people want to elect an insurrectionist, that's okay, but they just can't appoint one. Yeah, I <laughs> think that would be an argument. I mean, that's what I take to be the substance of the argument. You know, this this technical argument about wh- whether he's an officer or not, I think, is a sideshow because he obviously is. But I think if you want to credit that kind of argument with having any substance to it, it's not on the technicality of who's an officer or not, but it's on the relationship between uh, our, the four, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and, and our democracy, right? That the basic idea is that, you know, people who are trying to end our democracy, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't be able to do that. Um, but, you know, elections are, are part of our democracy, right? So, you know, it, that's a more paradoxical, like to say, well, people shouldn't be able to elect someone um, because we need to save democracy um, is more paradoxical. Um, than, than saying, well, nobody who's trying to end our democracy should be appointed into a situation where they can end our democracy. Now, there are a number of actually of other arguments that Ludig makes about why the court shouldn't dodge this issue. Another one, uh, and he, he he disputes the argument that, well, states don't have the power to uh, uh, essentially rule on a presidential candidate's qualifications for office because Section 5 of the, of the amendment, the 14th Amendment, says Congress shall have the power to enforce the provision by appropriate legislation. And uh, Ludig's point here is that, well, just because Congress has the power to enforce by appropriate legislation doesn't mean that the states have no role in this. It seems to me more of kind of like a federalism argument, which on the face of it should appeal to a majority of the justices, I would think. Yeah, I mean, one of the paradoxes for me is that um, I agree with, and I guess, well, let me just put it this way. I, I'm not a textualist. I'm not an originalist. Um, Ludig is, is those things. And we have, you know, most of the conservative uh, justices on the court who claim to be those things. And I, I fully agree with him that if you think that textualism and originalism are the only valid forms of constitutional interpretation, that um, that, 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 that text um, can best be read the way Judge Ludig is reading it. You know, the, the, the best reading of the text is that um, Generally, you know, state state governments are always under an obligation to com- comply with federal law. St- state courts are always an, under an obligation to give effect to federal law, and that includes federal constitutional law. Um, and the fact that Congress has power to legislate on a subject is neither here nor there to the question of whether state courts have to enforce the, the Constitution uh, directly. I agree with all that. I, I do have a little bit more sympathy for non-textualist interpretation, and, and I think here you know, to my own mind, it, it is actually a good um, uh, political principle that would be reinforcing of democracy that um, decisions of this magnitude should be made at a federal level. I actually think it would undermine democracy a bit to say that, you know, any any state or local official or even state Supreme Court um, can, can just decide to disqualify um, candidates from the ballot because they declare those candidates to be insurrectionists. I think there's room for quite a lot of political abuse there. 
Um, you know, one of my favorite, um, I would say, non-textualist cases uh, is the is the term limits case. I don't know if you and I have talked about that one before. I, I think we might have, but I, I'm I'm fairly familiar with those. But go ahead. Yeah. So the term limits case, in case the listeners don't know it, um, which I think is correctly decided, uh, but it's, it's it's essentially a non-textualist case. Uh, it 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 asks it, it addresses the question whether states can impose term limits on uh, U.S. senators and U.S. members of Congress. Right. So the the U.S. Constitution doesn't do that. And in Arkansas, the voters actually, uh, by ballot initiative, amended the Arkansas state constitution and said uh, nobody can go to the U.S. Senate or the U.S. House from 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 Arkansas uh, for more than 12 years. Um, And then they're then they're done. And and that gets challenged uh, at at the at the U.S. Supreme Court. And it's a five four case. And all the the textualists and originalists on the court join uh, Justice Thomas's dissent, which thinks that Arkansas can do that because there's nothing in the Constitution that says that they can't. Um, but the the majority uh, by Justice Kennedy um, uh, says, well, actually, it's, there's I say by Justice, there's two separate opinions. Two, there's a, a, a Stevens opinion and a Kennedy opinion. But between the Stevens and the Kennedy opinions, the, I think the commonality is they say, well, even though it's not spelled out in the words of the Constitution, the structure of the Constitution really requires that um, there be separate lines of privity between the each voter and, and, and each government. So, you know, I'm a citizen of Ohio, and I'm also a citizen of the United States. So as a citizen of Ohio, um, the Ohio government is a government of the people, by the people, and for the people of Ohio. It's directly uh, constituted by me, responsible to me, has jurisdiction over me. Uh, and meanwhile, the same is true of the United States. The United States is a Republican form of government. I'm a citizen of the United States. The United States government is a, a, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. But the key to this majority opinion is that the, the states are not merely bureaus or departments or branches of the United States government, but neither is the United States government merely like a compact between the states. They're just independent um, uh, governments that are in direct privity with the voters and that are not, um, you know, in, in, they're not able to structure each other. And, and so the, 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 the court holds in the term limits case, Arkansas can't tell those United States citizens who live in Arkansas um, who they can elect to the United States government. They just can't interfere with that relationship between um, the, the citizens of the United States who happen to live in Arkansas and, and, and the government of the United States. And I think those kind of principles are really good structural principles. I, I do believe structural interpretation is a good form of interpretation, and and I would I would probably be more sympathetic to deploying that here and saying, you know, we we actually can't allow state or local governments to play that big of a role in interfering with who people who the citizens of the United States who happen to live in a state um, can choose to elect to the United States government. Um, that that those kind of uh, uh, decisions or responsibilities have to be federalized, and so that some responsible federal official should have to declare that Trump is disqualified um, before uh, he could actually be be disqualified. And that would match the practice that followed the Civil War, because after the Civil War, it was the the Defense Department, although it was then called the War Department, um, that was issuing lists of people who were disqualified by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And so that was a responsible federal agency issuing those lists. I I think, you know, I, I would, you know, be I wouldn't have any problem with a ruling that uses that off-ramp. I think that's actually a valid off-ramp. But what Judge Ludig points out is uh, um, that, that if you're a textualist and originalist, 
then that's not a valid off-ramp for, for you to use. It occurs to me, as you were uh, as you were explaining that, it occurs to me that under sort of that understanding of the Constitution, the Tenth Amendment, the uh, uh, states' rights in this matter, that a state could presumably uh, pass a law saying, a, a ballot access law saying that if in the view of our state you are really anything, because there's no limiting principle in the Constitution there, if states are allowed to add requirements for eligibility, it would be pretty easy to uh, ensure that certain disfavored candidates don't appear on the ballot in your state, which would be yeah, a that's, pretty... that's my point. Yeah. That's why I think the term ruling is correct, right? I mean, under, under, the, under the Thomas dissent in the term limits ruling, the state could have added any qualifications that they wanted to. So in that case, the qualification was that you not have already served for, for uh, 12 years. But, you know, if the qualification was, well, you're not a member of the Democratic Party, you know, we're not going to add you the ballot if you're a member of the Democratic Party. Um, I think the Thomas dissent in term limits says, well, states could do that because there's no nothing in the Constitution that says that they can't. And and I think the, the better rule is the majority's rule, that, that the states cannot interfere with the privity between the voters in there that happen to live in that state um, and the United States government. And I should point out, there's one more argument that Ludig makes about uh, the, the court not uh, dismissing this in one way. He talks about the political question issue and he says, this isn't that uh, because he argues that there are in fact judicially manageable standards by, by which the courts can determine if someone has committed Insurrection. And I love how he makes this point, kind of taking a shot at the court. He said, listen, it's easier to it's easier to determine whether someone's an insurrectionist than, oh, I don't know, to decide on whether equal protection applies in vote counting like you guys did in Bush versus Gore, which I thought was kind of a kind of a little <laughs> shot there. But uh, what do you yeah. think about that argument? Yeah, I, I fully agree with him that the court should decide the case. I, I, I think there's more paths where um they could decide it in, in in a way that overrules the Colorado Supreme Court, but I, I think uh, I think the the political question doctrine, um, although the word you know sounds to most people like they're talking about this is just politics, not law. Um, the, the the usual actual technical legal meaning of the political question doctrine uh, is that the um, the courts shouldn't decide um, questions that are supposed to be decided in the other uh, federal branches of government. Um, which are sometimes referred to as the uh, political branches. So, you know, in this week's regular show earlier, um, uh, earlier this week for the listeners, earlier today for us, you and I were talking about the Judge Walter Nixon uh, impeachment case. That was a case where the political question doctrine applied. And what the court said is, well, um, a, a, an impeachment trial is a trial, uh, but the Constitution uh, places responsibility for the conduct of that trial in the U.S. Senate. U.S. Senate is part of the Congress. That's part of the legislative branch. That's one of the political branches of the government. So if there's a, a trial-like proceeding, you know, normally those things take place in a court. But if the Constitution says that this particular trial proceeding has to take place in the Senate, um, then that means that the courts don't have jurisdiction over deciding whether whether it was done right or wrong, that, that the Senate gets to decide that. And I think that, that kind of uh, political question doctrine would have no application. Uh, to this case, because the other branches are not implicated at all. It, it's it's really a, a state court. Political question doctrine doesn't apply um, in cases, in federalism cases, basically. It only applies in separation of powers cases where the argument would be the court should stay out because this is something that the Senate's supposed to decide, or the court should stay out because this is something that the White House is supposed to decide. 
Um, but but there's no concept that a similar uh, doctrine could ever apply um, where the court should stay out because this is something that states are supposed to decide. Uh, if states are supposed to decide it, then the court on the merits should rule that states are supposed to decide it. They shouldn't just stay out of the case. Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. If you're not already a supporter of the show, I hope you'll consider becoming one because without our supporters, we wouldn't be able to do this. And when you become a supporter, you get not just that warm, fuzzy feeling knowing that you're supporting a good cause. I like to think we're a good cause, but you also get stuff like ad-free versions of everything we put out. You get our supporter exclusive midweek show, the full length of that, not just the preview. And you also get to be part of our discord group if you want. And there's always some interesting conversations going on there at the $10 a month level or more. You get to actually be part of the episodes J and I do, if that's something you're interested in. So there's a lot of stuff is what I am saying. And I hope you'll consider checking it out. And to do that, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. If you want to support us on Venmo, we're at politics guys. You can also support the show through PayPal and all of our support links are always in the show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And as always, I want to close with a very special thank you to our wonderful executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby.